I'm Anne-Marie Gutz of New York University, and I'm here with Madeline Reese of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, one of the oldest peace organizations in the world. She's the Secretary General of WILF. We're here to talk about gender and power in international relations. Um, and this is a, an issue which is a huge disruptor in how we think about power. But our job sometimes is made easier when we listen to speeches by people like President Trump speaking today at the General Assembly, September 22nd, where he boasted about the U.S.'s power in terms of its weaponry and destructive capability. Over to you, Madeline, um, to discuss gender and power. Yes, how interesting he is epitomizing the need for military expenditure when he is presiding over 200,000 American deaths because of his inaction in relation to an, a pandemic. Two elements here I think very important. Our concepts of power come from a patriarchal then colonial system. And so it really epitomizes the need for power over, which is both economic and military. And that's highly gendered, as it requires particular gender relations and the performance of that gender in order to sustain both of those two systems. And they feed one off the other. And in fact, the structures of the United Nations reflect this. You've only got to think of how the P5 in the Security Council use and abuse their vetoes to assert that economic and military power in their own interests, regardless of the negative impact on peace. And why is that gendered? And I think Obed has really emphasized this because of the, at the risk of essentializing the issue, the women leaders did so much better, have done so much better. And the reason for that is that there was not an expectation of particular performance of leadership from those women leaders. They, they all did well. They were decisive. They locked down early. They were not risk averse to shutting down the economy and avoiding military expenditure, seen as being absolutely vital to the other economies, the, the male-dominated ones. And it changed the dynamics within the pandemic so that, in fact, they caused much less deaths and suffering than in those who took a different path. Um, and I think that's it's absolutely vital to understand that those gender dynamics are still playing out within the whole pandemic. And I think one of the issues that really is very important to emphasize is this pandemic within the pandemic of domestic violence. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Madeline. Um, the issue of domestic violence, um, a, a lot of observers and international relations theorists would say, well, what on earth does that have to do with international power relations? How does that affect the way that we live out global affairs? Well, domestic violence is a global pandemic. It has been forever. And it's actually one of the three key features of gender relations which um, you see when you take off your gender blind blinkers or one's gender blind blinkers. These three features of gender relations shape our world. One is global tolerance of unbelievable levels of violence towards women in private domestic space. The second is the gigantic unpaid subsidy that women provide to the global economy via their care work. And the third is the legal and sexual subordination of women to men, which gives men the sense of control over women's reproductive rights. Now, what you see in, econ in the um, countries that are run by women at the moment, and by the way, this is not just about individual women's leadership. These are countries that have prioritized welfare and care, and that, as you said, do not prioritize gigantic military expenditure. 
um, or have at least got these imbalanced. So in these countries where women are prioritizing care, we see the capacity to actually listen to science and respond to the pandemic, as well as take very, very seriously that what is essential in human relations is not violence, is not destruction, but is reproducing our economies, our societies in a fair and just way. So um, violence against women is actually considered to be one of the best indicators of whether a country will be will have a high propensity to engage in armed violence. Research by Valerie Hudson and others shows that in countries that tolerate high levels of violence against women, those are countries that are more likely to use or deploy armed violence against internal opponents or against other countries on their borders. Countries that are able to control levels of violence against women, it turns out, happen to be countries that have very, very strong women's movements because it's women's movements that see that this is an injustice and fight it and demand public responses. So something like violence against women, the pandemic within the pandemic, actually is an indicator of how uh, how to actually find our way out of this pandemic. I don't know if you want to add anything at this stage. I also think it is one of the reasons why there's been such a huge pushback on the women's movement, because it is the great disruptor. If we look at the political economy and how that's going to play out, if those uh, those aims were realized, then we'd see that this would lead to a fundamental shift in how power relations actually work internationally and nationally. That's a beautiful way to end our call, actually, because that shows that if we took violence against women seriously and listened to women's voices, and if there was justice and legal and social, economic and political equality, there wouldn't be this violence against women and we would have more equitable, peaceful societies. And with that, I'd like to thank you so much, Madeline.